Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, welcome back to the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, Nuclear View, where our panel of experts talks about current events and topics of, of interest. And today, of course, Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and our very special panelist for us today is Bob Peters, who many of you know, and he's been around D.C. a long time, and he's joining us on the nuclear visa. Thanks for being here, Bob. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, for Curtis and Jim, now you guys all know that we've, you know, the the NIDS folks published an article. Bob, uh, you as well know that we published an article over the weekend in Real Clear Defense. Uh, I think it was called Integrated Deterrence, Grand Strategies, Poor Cousin. And the argument that we made in that article, and of course, Bob, I fully expect you to tell us if we're wrong, but the argument we made was that the NPR or the NDS, the NSS, that all sort of introduce integrated deterrence as a concept, that integrated deterrence was in fact not uh an approach to deterrence, a deterrence strategy, but it was in fact a larger grand strategy because it tied together all of the elements of national power into a strategy that did a lot more than just, you know, deter the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans. And so it was mislabeled as a, as a deterrence strategy when in fact it's grand strategy. And then the critique was, well, because it undermines, you know, psychologically the relevance of deterrence, uh, it didn't even deter particularly well. That was sort of the critique of the NPR and of the concept. And so, Bob, as the guest, what is your take on integrated deterrence? And then do you think that the sort of the basic argument was was right or was wrong or somewhere in between what's your take yeah thanks adam and, and thanks again for the invitation to join you guys um it, it's great to, to to speak with you and, and curtis and jim um always a pleasure so my take on integrated deterrence um i'll be a little bit contrary here it, it's not a grand strategy i mean to me grand strategy is um you know 19th century Great Britain being an offshore balancer to whoever the major power is of, you know, France, then later Germany, you name it, right? That was their grand strategy, make sure that no one becomes the dominant power in continental Europe. Or grand strategy could be containment, right, of the U.S.-led Western democracies and their allies trying to contain the spread of communism. It has a broad approach with ways and means towards a specific end. Integrated deterrence is we're going to take all this stuff that we've been doing and then we're going to integrate it. Boom. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I don't want to say it's old wine in a new bottle, but it does incorporate 
a lot of things that have been kind of kicking around for the last 15 years. Going back to Elaine Bunn's and Vince Manza's article about Taylor deterrence, some of the work that Brad Roberts and others were doing on multi-domain deterrence. Um, and, you know, those are all important components of, of deterrence architecture. Um, but I'm not convinced that there's a lot of there there once you start to unpack the NDS and then the NPR when it comes to integrated deterrence, because it basically says we're going to take, you know, all the levers of national power, diplomacy, information, military, economics, and integrate it into some kind of cohesive architecture. And that'll deter a whole bunch of folks from doing a whole bunch of things when applied against a specific adversary. Um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, insert a miracle here within the NDS and the NPR. <laughs> in, in that, look, up to this point, I totally agree with them. Yes, you need to integrate all those instruments and levers of national power to achieve strategic effect. No argument. No argument. But then how do you get, you know, leave aside, let, let's say that you're dealing with a crisis in the Indo-Pacific. So you've got a combatant commander in, in that's a regional. You're going to have to rope in maybe STRATCOM, maybe SPACECOM, maybe CYBERCOM, maybe NORTHCOM. So now you're talking about a minimum of five different combatant commanders all trying to figure out with overlapping authorities how they're going to integrate their instruments of power to deter an adversary from doing a specific thing. And I know that... Some folks in, in, in operation shops will say, yeah, that's supporting, supported. We do that all the time. Yes, but this is a bit more complex than what's been done in the past. But let's say you figure all that out. How then do you integrate pre-conflict the equities of Department of State, Department of Treasury, Department of Homeland Security, Department of, Com Department of Commerce, the intelligence community, to a cohesive deterrence architecture pre-conflict to prevent a specific adversary from doing a specific thing outside of like the deputies committee of the national security council. Like, I don't know, I don't know how you operationalize that. And so that's kind of my biggest beef with integrated deterrence is, is by all means use all the instruments of national power to keep bad guys from doing bad things. But how do you actually operationalize that and organize that to achieve strategic effect? And that's, that's kind of where I come down on integrated deterrence. Yeah, thanks for that. That's that's. Uh, I think you made some really good points there. the The only question that I have, and then maybe you can answer this, and Jim and Curtis get you give your opinion as well. Though I, I sort of think that deterrence isn't sort of the end state itself. We're sort of a status quo power that seeks you know stability in the international system, and we don't want change. And to me, that's that is our grand strategy. And what we're really trying to do is to just keep the Russians and the Chinese participating in the liberal international order and not to cause too much trouble as they pursue their interest. And that this NSS, NDS, integrated deterrence are all ways to try to achieve that and, and for the ideological you know, proclivities of the administration and many of its supporters, you have to, you know, as part of sort of religious doctrine, you have to reduce the role of nuclear weapons. 
just, it's just a, it's a sine qua non that something that you have to do. And so how do you sort of maintain the status quo with two great powers that don't want the system to be as it is anymore? They want change, you know, it's not, you know, make the system great again. It's dump the system, but how do you do it when you're not going to use the biggest, you know, the biggest hammer you've got. And to me, that is a lot of the problem with, integrated deterrence. So Bob, you, and then let's Curtis and, and Jim. Yeah. So, so Adam, I agree with a lot of what you said there in that we are a status quo power. Um, you know, uh, the Russians, I think in my view are opportunists, maybe they're spoilers at times. Um, but the Chinese really are the revisionist power, but even beyond revisionists they're in my view, they're burn it to the ground and we're going to replace it with something that is centered around Beijing and we will write the new rules of the road. Um, and, and, and I take your point that maybe there are some within this administration. Look, there's a lot of really smart people in, in the Biden administration, so I'm not casting shade on the Biden administration. Definitely. But, Definitely. but I think that there is an element that wants to severely reduce, reduce the, 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 the role and salience of nuclear weapons. And it's hard to do that in the face of this breathtaking expansion of the Russian and Chinese nuclear arsenals despite all our best efforts to, to no kidding, reduce the role and saliency of nuclear weapons within the American arsenal and amongst our allies and partners. And so I, th I think, I think, you know, you kind of hit on it and that this is a way to bridge multiple communities together uh, within the current administration, all of whom who have good intentions, uh, but may not see the world in the same way that each other do, and maybe not the same way that the four of us do. Um, and so integrated deterrence is a way to say, we can remain a status quo power and counter the revisionist perspectives of those in Russia and China while still maintaining a nuclear arsenal, but trying to reduce the salience of those nuclear weapons in the face of this, again, breathtaking expansion of their nuclear capabilities. Yeah, I agree. I know you're chomping at the bit, Curtis. What say you? So I thank you, Adam, and 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 thanks, Bob, for being here with us. Um, you know, I, I think to, to Bob's point, you know, who, who's going to be able to orchestrate, you know, an interagency, a whole of government deterrence effort? Well, it's a, deter a deterrence czar, of course, we need a czar, uh, to lead the deterrence effort here for the U.S. I think, especially if uh, the deterrence uh, czar, I think he is he's under the tutelage of the drug czar, uh, given him, the drug czar's great successes over the last 30 years in the war on drugs. Just say so. no. Just say no. Uh, so, um, and, and if we measure the, the current uh, uh, fentanyl flow, uh, we'll, we'll use that as our measurement for success. So, you know, first of all, um, before I, I, I launch here uh, in my room, I, I have to bring up here, you, you said sine qua non, uh, you know, uh, that's a big <laughs> Latin word that I want to make sure our, our, our listeners know what that means. An essential condition, a thing that is absolutely necessary. And why, how do I know that? It's just, I just looked at Google. Up. So I want to make sure everybody understands this, right? So, um, <laughs> and deterrence is a sine qua non. It is something that is essential and must occur, whether we hang on you know, whatever kind of adjective we hang in front of the word, right? 
But the thing about deterrence is, is really in, in my mind's eye, and, and others may disagree, but I think it really, ba- it, it, it relies heavily on fear. And when you use integrated deterrence, there's not a whole lot to be afraid of, especially if you're a nation like Russia that has prepared uh, financially and has already withstood years and years of economic sanctions. Or if you're China, who is a country that is basically able to, uh, to be somewhat economically self-sufficient and is our, our, our main trading, uh, 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 trading partner, uh, how, do we, how do we execute integrated deterrence using economics, for example, on China uh, when there is big and is prepared and, and, and would likely be hurting ourselves? Uh, so I think these things become very difficult. And I think integrated deterrence, uh, and to Bob's point, is is really just sort of a retitling of of um, of this across domain deterrence idea of of dealing with the different domains. Although it's gone beyond that because it's more whole of government. And so, um, you know, I think it's there's a little bit of Pentagon platitude in that terminology as well. Uh, you know, I, I used to, it's the old joke that I used to share when I was in the Pentagon was when something new came down like that, it was so that somebody else could get promoted. And so hopefully someone got promoted on that term. Um, and, uh, and, uh, at some point in time, it'll go away and somebody will get promoted for coming up with that idea to do away with it. Uh, but in the end, integrated deterrence, I think, uh, under at least the Biden administration's effort and, uh, you know, its first real use was the Ukraine, was to try to deter the Ukraine invasion. And I don't think it was successful. <laughs> and so I think the Ukrainians uh, it, would it, agree with you, Curtis. I think so. I think so. And if you listen to any of the testimonies from, from Congressman uh, Gallagher, uh, who talks about it quite often, uh, it, it's an interesting, if not entertaining, uh, uh, YouTube um, offering. So, uh, yeah, I think there's lots to learn here on integrated deterrence, lots to think about and work through. But in the end, all that other stuff is nice and can be your your first go to. But it doesn't work if you don't have the backdrop of a robust nuclear deterrent capability uh, to provide that impetus of fear uh, in order to empower our diplomats and to encourage um, our economic power. I'll stop there. Okay, I know Jim's been waiting patiently. Uh, yeah, th- thanks, Adam. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so I appreciate you letting me go last because now you've given me a lot of stars <laughs> to work with. Because I, first of all, I, I want everyone to take note that this was a, a NIDS document that was produced, but I was never invited to help out with writing this uh, because Adam knew that I was going to be a contrarian in this area because I've talked a little bit about... Uh, integrated deterrence and maybe uh, maybe broader to Curtis uh, Curtis McGiffin's whack-a-mole theory where you could give, give a little bit of everything and you can keep people at bay. And so so the first my my first comment and I'm going to go back to Curtis last cuz he's the one that said, you know, Russia was not afraid uh, you know, did we did not bring fear into them from Ukraine, but remember or for the Ukraine war but remember, when we talk about nuclear deterrence, there's two components of that. One, having a viable and credible nuclear force, that's true, and a, a, an absolute desire to use it 
in an operational sense. We use it every day. The Russians are using it every day, but use it in an operational sense if needed. And the fear that doesn't come about here that I think is the failure is not that we have an integrated deterrence, but rather the our ability or desire to use that force, use those uh, uh, various uh, uh, capabilities to bring economic, to bring, you know, uh, use energy, to use economics, to use politics in a way that would have deterred Russia's invasion into Ukraine. Where was that ahead of time? Is that a failure of how, not having the, the integrated deterrent or is that a failure of implementing it? And that's the concern I have there and also in this grand nuclear deterrence as well. And that, that's not really addressed here. And I'd be interested, Bob, in what you think about that. Are we willing to step forward? And I'm going to uh, uh, you know, step forward and get in the way with all of our powers when we have an integrated deterrent. And with Adam, you said the objective of the deterrent was to bring about status quo. Maybe that's the problem. Status quo is nice to say we're in peace, so therefore we have status quo. But what about when we're at war? We were in war in Iraq. Do we want status quo or do we want to move forward and not have that happen again? There's a difference there with the status quo mentality. So I'd, I'd be interested, Adam, in your thoughts on that, because I think integrated deterrence is really valuable in those two pieces. Bob? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So there are interesting points. So you know, people say that we we you know Ukraine was the first failure of integrated deterrence, and I kind of take where you were headed. In that, was that really an application of integrated deterrence? You know, February, January, December of last year. I'm not sure it was. In that, if that was an actually a, a, in a, a first attempt to employ integrated deterrence principles, I didn't see it. There was a lot of there was a lot of talk. Uh, we moved some stuff there, but um, you know, frankly, we could have moved more stuff earlier. We could have been more robust on the economic side. It may have not been a full on okay. Let's get the NSC together, and we're going to have near continuous um, meetings at the assistant secretary and deputies level and principals level to try to really craft and employ an integrated deterrence approach to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. Now, all that said, have we been up to this moment successful in deterring Russian nuclear employment on Ukraine? That's a different question. Now, maybe, you know, I'll be honest, there have been times where I've been waiting for like low yield new debts to go off in Ukraine, given how badly the Russians have performed, right? I mean, uh, a question that we should be asking ourselves at this point, why haven't they at this juncture, especially what's happened over the last week in regards to some of those just breathtaking loss of life that the Russian army has, has undertaken. Now, is that because of the conscious effort on our part to deter Russian nuclear employment on Ukraine, or is this you know, the fact that we've got our nuclear arsenal in the background and it's Thomas Schelling's risk that leaves something to chance to make the Russians say, well, we go down this route. Who who can say what the Americans will do? Um, I'm not sure that's actually us deterring Russia. That may be luck, right? Um, and we may just be, you know, God loves America, so therefore we haven't faced this particular crisis as of yet. Um, but um, the irony is that 
I don't, we didn't deter Russia from invading Ukraine, even though we said we did, but we may, despite ourselves, have deterred Russia up to this moment from employing nuclear weapons, even though we, there hasn't been a lot of talk about that very thing. Yeah, good points. Uh, Curtis? So, um, interesting. Um, so, Bob, is your is it your point that because we didn't apply integrated deterrence properly, therefore integrated deterrence didn't fail? Uh, see, I, the way I understand integrated deterrence to be is is that we're using other items than the military uh, uh, first. You know, economics. As far as diplomacy, we're not talking to anybody. There is no effort to negotiate for peace. Um, and uh, at least um, above the line, if you will, there may be backdoor channels going on, but we don't know that. Um, and, um, it, and and uh, other think tanks have actually published articles that say that you're just going to have to let them fight it out. And uh, and there is that is death and destruction that will continue. And, uh, and so uh, my point is, is that the only threat we really leveraged prior uh, to February 24th was this economic uh, uh, sanction threat, which was well levied. And then we had some confusion, as I should say, some confusing statements in the, within our senior leadership about whether or not economic sanctions were supposed to deter or not deter. Uh, you can, uh, we can see those transcripts out there from senior leaders in our U.S. government to include POTUS, v. POTUS, sex state. Um, and so uh, deterrence it really relies on a on a uh, on a successful communication campaign that is persistent um, and full of resolve. And uh, and I think I, I think that if those things fail, you are essentially uh, 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 that is essentially part of the integrated deterrence, you know, quote unquote failure. I take your point that we have successfully deterred to this to this moment uh, Russia using a nuclear weapon, um, uh, and, but I think that is that is uh, in spite of integrated deterrence, not because of integrated deterrence. The nuclear the nuclear backstop continues to hold. Schelling's model applies, and uh, and and so those things all uh, I think are all still holding, um, but essentially. What we have to think about now is how much how much longer, um, you know, that will hold because we're going to go. We're almost a year. This was supposed to be over in three days, uh, and so uh, in in essence, though, I think integrated deterrence uh, may well be um, a, a valiant effort to to provide tools uh, to or to bend tools that have already existed in order to. Uh, de-emphasize our nuclear, our strategic nuclear deterrent uh, capability because of the efforts to uh, perhaps uh, address the more idealistic uh, portion of our of our population that are looking for disarmament. But the reality is, is that it is the nuclear backstop that is keeping the peace as far as nuclear goes uh, uh, to that extent. And so that's my retort there. Go for it, Jim. Yeah, yeah, Curtis. Although I, you know, my my view is, it's your your comments and Bob's comments both are based on the assumption that Russia intended to use its nuclear forces in an operational fashion. Now I'll tell you what, Putin is using his nuclear forces in a very good way, and we are responding in a way 
that uh, is surprising. And that that is based on an assumption that there was always that, that the background was nuclear. What if it never was? For example, in Iraq, we never we, we you know, deterrence failed. We had a war. If deterrence is averting war, we had a war. Nuclear was not part of that option at all. So what failed there and how can you make that comparison? And I don't. And, and so I'm not trying to, to lower the, the, the nuclear part, but I do believe all of these other instruments of power are extremely important in deterrence when you discuss what are you deterring. And Bob said we deterred, at least so far in, in Ukraine, we've deterred the use of nuclear weapons. We've also deterred the war falling outside of the boundaries of Ukraine. I believe truly that, that Russia is very careful not to step into areas, you know, when they had those missiles go into Poland, etc. That was a very, very concerning piece for the Russians. And I think that makes a difference in the way that the instruments of power are used, because it gives you a stepping stone well below nuclear threshold to be able to work with. Without it there, we don't have that as a, an effort. What What do you say, Bob? Those are all fair points. Those are all fair points. And, and, and maybe maybe Mr. Putin has never intended to use nuclear weapons, you know, irrespective of what the United States and our allies were going to do. That, that may be. Um, and I and I also agree with you that he has been very careful about trying to confine this thing so far to Ukraine and not stepping outside. Absolutely. No question. Um, you know, from my perspective. When you try to implement a deterrence campaign, you one would hope that you would be very considerate in the types of tools that you're going to employ to achieve specific effect within a confined period of time, right? To keep somebody from doing something. And I simply have not seen that applied to Ukraine to prevent the invasion. And 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 let's let's posit that the American nuclear arsenal has had some effect on Mr. Putin's decision calculus vis-a-vis his nuclear arsenal. That's not because of any concerted effort on our part that I can see. It's simply the fact that he knows that these exist and who knows what those crazy Americans will do, will do so let's not go down that pathway. Um, and, and, you know, but none of that is integrated deterrence. That's just government doing stuff. And, you know, people in positions of power say, well, I don't know. I mean, we can sanction, we can sanction their oil, we can sanction their imports. Uh, let's throw spaghetti at a wall and maybe it'll work. Um, but when you actually look at the NDS and the NPR and the NSS, it talks about this being a concerted effort to very carefully employ the levers of power. And I have not seen that vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. And, and so I, I can't say it's, I can't say that it's been a failure of integrated deterrence because it integrated deterrence, to my mind, hasn't been seriously employed. Now, that's not a defense of the administration. That's not a defense of integrated deterrence as a concept. But but let's not grade something on something that's never happened. Yeah, I think you you, I you make a fair point. And, you know, it's I sort of think about uh, as I think about integrated deterrence, to me, it's sort of an it's an this part of the reason I say it's not deterrence, it's grand strategy is it's kind of an overwhelming, overarching approach to all foreign policy. Because as I think about nuclear, I think deterrence and I, you know, I think nuclear, but I will I will admit that like whenever the Brad uh, Roberts and the folks at 
at uh, CGSR did that book a few years ago on, you know, cross-domain deterrence, I actually thought they were making a really good point. And I don't think cross-domain deterrence and integrated deterrence are really similar at all. Because as I think about cross-domain deterrence, I'm thinking if somebody launches a devastating cyber attack that sort of has similar, you know, impacts as a nuclear strike, can I then respond with a nuclear weapon or, you know, an attack on space assets? If, if you were to shut down PNT, position, navigation, and timing, if you were to shut that down and you shut down U.S. banking, uh, most people don't realize, but our electric grid requires PNT. We, we would lose power. If you did all those things, is that equivalent to a nuclear strike? And to me, that's cross-domain deterrence, and that's a legit. Those are legitimate questions to ask. But this, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna solve the climate change problem, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure that we have diversity, equity, and inclusion, so that we can solve the world's problems, and you know, all of these hosts of things that are sort of thrown into the NSS, and then this very squishy integrated deterrence, I, I sort of see it the way Eisenhower did where Eisenhower said, okay, there, if you do these things, we're going to nuke you that, you know, that's what we're going to do. And there's sort of a level of violence uh, below those things that we're sort of going to tolerate. Like I'm a huge fan of terrorism. I love terrorism because terrorism, <laughs> your adversary always has to have an outlet for violence. They, they, they have to, when, when there's big disagreements, you've got to have some level of outlet for violence. Historically, that's been great power wars and great power wars are really, really destructive. That's how you settled it. But America has become so good at tamping down violence that if you think about a conflict pyramid where the capstone is nuclear conflict, and then, you know, the next layer is great power wars. And then let's say it's, you know, lesser, lesser conflicts, you know, Iraqs and, you know, Vietnams and things like that. And then counterinsurgencies. And then at the very bottom is terrorism. And it's the most likely but least dangerous. I, I think that's a victory for America that we've been able to deter using nuclear weapons all the way down to that level where there's no existential threat. And that, but Adam, go ahead. But Adam, I just want to say though, in, in oftentimes in the terrorism side, it goes back to Curtis's comment that it's clear. It's when a bomb goes off, someone clearly you know claims it, they say what their objectives are, et cetera. That can be applied all the way up that same pyramid. And that, that to me is where this gets muddled. Yeah. So let me add to this, Adam, uh, you know, the conflict pyramid that you refer to that you, you, you did back in 2009, <laughs> I think. I've been using uh, that sucker for years. <laughs> but, you know, uh, and, and not to be overly critical, uh, I love the conflict pyramid. You need to review that and, and add in where does gray zone warfare fit in that, in that pyramid? Sure. Because that's also sure. an outlet. And, and we look at gray zone warfare, if you will, hybrid warfare, what the Russians call new generation warfare, um, essentially is uh, there are some scholars out there that say that that is the product of successful nuclear yeah. deterrence, right? That yeah. There is, is no other way to have a conflict between great powers 
except through these lower levels of gray zone. We see gray zone uh, with China as well. All of what they're doing in the South China Sea with this 500 ship, you know, civilianized uh, Coast Guard uh, that they use to harass uh, the, na- the, the, the country's uh, fishermen and everything around them uh, so that their naval vessels don't have to. This is gray zone warfare in, in, in open, the open ocean, as well as, of course, we all know about how the Russians do it. And, and so, uh, you know, that to me is, is integrated, uh, is an integrated form of warfare. Uh, and conversely, if you're trying to stop it, it's an integrated form of deterrence. Uh, but let me ask you, I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you a question, Adam, and the others uh, obviously add on here, but do you think that um, the, the integratedness of our, of our world, our economies, for example, in Europe, uh, and the over-reliance on Russian uh, uh, fossil fuels for the European continent, does that help or hinder integrated deterrence as Secretary Austin intends it to be? Um, I'm not sure, but I just read this book. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was it's a book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And it talks about the collapse of globalization and how we're already on that path and how we move into regional blocks. And, and, and ultimately it's, it's very damning for the Chinese in particular, because they're probably in the worst geostrategic position of any country. And so I'm more optimistic for the United States after reading it. And, and, and it's, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, but I, I'm not sure about your question because my thoughts are unsettled after after reading that. But I know Bob had some thoughts he was going to share. So Bob and then Jim, why don't you two take the the last? Because you know we're the, these conversations get interesting. So, but we you know, but I we got to end the show. I was just going to say that, like, just as Adam's a fan of terrorism, I'm a fan of gray zone warfare and little green men. I want more of them. <laughs> Um, because it, because it, it's like, you know, oh, look, the Russians are sending in dudes with their patches off and low levels into these contested ethno-sectarian states. Well, okay, well, good. Like, not, I mean, not good. Like, I wish they weren't doing that. But at least they're not invading Poland or Czechoslovakia like they would have done 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, yeah, exactly. We've, we've prevented we've – prevented straight up conventional great power industrialized warfare that the last time we saw this movie, it killed 120 million people. And so if, if the Chinese and the Russians want to send in dudes who are volunteers and do this gray zone conflict, then, then God bless them. And, and as far as like the Island building in the South China sea and all of that, like leave aside that the Chinese are creating the greatest, you know, natural disaster in the world right now for the amount of pollution they're dumping in the South China Sea. But in a lot of ways, like this gives us more targeting opportunities if a war does break out, because then, you know, fiery crosses on the menu, boys. Uh, I mean, so like, there's a part of me that's like, if this is the future of warfare between highly industrialized, highly technologically advanced nations, God bless it. You know, we'll give you the last word, Jim. What say you? Well, thanks. Yeah, well, as I was listening to Bob talk, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. And that is, is this is this gray warfare a result of 
of the failure of integrated deterrence or is it actually a result of the integrated deterrence because it low it gives you those levels to work within and so that's you know that's my my point here and the other piece of this is that um as we look at warfare as it goes about and this is to adam's point about you know global economy and does it hurt you i turn it around the global economy works both ways um, you might say, you know, China has the economic stronghold, but where does China get all its money and where does it sell all its product, at least presently? And if we fall, they fall. So we, so, so it's a, a tit for tat once again, you've got to look at that global integrated piece. And I think that's what brings about the interest in this, uh, in this concept. The nuclear pieces are the ones that seem not to be as integrated. Uh, everybody has their own. And when the fallback occurs, everyone falls back to their own. So now you have you know, triad-like ways of, of maintaining peace throughout the world. And I think that's pretty good. It works all together the way the triad does. So that's my final, my, my final say, Adam. All right. Well, Bob, thanks for joining us. We'll certainly have you back. And as always, Jim and Curtis, it's always a good chat. Uh, we're trying, we, you know, we spiced it up a little bit today and a little bit of disagreement. So glad to have some of that. And uh, of course, I want to thank the listeners for joining us on the Nuclear View. And we will see you next time.